Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It is session number 121 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings tonight, and tonight is going to be our last session on the Arendel poem. Not that we're never going to allude to it again, but we are going to complete our discussion of the Arendel poem tonight. Uh, and it's... Uh, uh, it's going to be uh, kind of fun. <laughs> so, uh, JJ, it is a little past Lucky Episode 13, uh, but I can't really possibly follow up that act. JJ is uh, referring to my son's stream earlier today. He did his, the 13th episode of his po Pokemon stream this afternoon, in which he accomplished a feat I've never seen before, which is that he sang continuously for 50 minutes, almost his entire hour. He started a random narrative song, extemporaneous narrative song, ten minutes into his stream, and kept it up the whole time, with like, percussion and dance moves and everything. Uh, it was, um, it was something. <laughs> it was something. <laughs> I was cracking up. Uh, in fact, I was, um, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, uh, I st strongly recommend episode 13 of the Pokemon Discovery Project. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it, it was, it was a particularly excellent one. <laughs> anyway, uh, so no, no, that is, that is not what is going to be happening tonight. Um, uh, I'm only going to be talking about a song and not actually singing it, um, but before we begin, a couple quick announcements. Uh, first, I wanted to mention that uh, uh, we have a, a new special, an Anytime Audit special running um, right now, um, which is, um, oh yeah, and I think uh, my stream title, I forgot to change my stream title for my son's stream as well, so there we go. Oh well, I'll fix it later. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> so, uh, sorry, as I was saying, we're doing a special on the, uh, the uh, a course by Dimitri Fimi called Folkloric Transformations. It is a very seasonal course. Uh, it's a course on uh, sort of the roots of like vampire stories and ghost stories and folklore and how those were uh, transformed into, uh, into novels and, and into films as well. So um, really, really interesting course. And of course, uh, everything Dimitri Fimi does is, uh, is brilliant, as many of you I'm sure know. Um, and that was really a wonderful class. So um, Anyway, I strongly recommend that. As I said, that's on special $75 for, uh, uh, for enrollment in that, you know, for uh, the asynchronous enrollment in that course um, between now and the first week of, uh, of November, I believe. So go to signumuniversity.org uh, and you will see uh, a link to that uh, on the homepage. Also, the next Mythgard Academy class is going to begin. So we just completed Sauron Defeated last Wednesday. Um, so we're done with Sauron Defeated. We've now done the first nine volumes of the history of Middle-earth over the last several years in the Mythgard Academy. And of course, as many of you know, uh, we intersperse Tolkien books with... Okay, it's not officially an interspersing of Tolkien books, but we've got a lot of Tolkien fans in the Mythgard Academy. So the technical rule is that we're not allowed to do two books by the same author in a row. That's the rule that we set many years ago. And it's really been like, uh, what it means is that we don't do Tolkien more than every other book. But we've reliably done a Tolkien book every other book for the whole history of the Mythgard Academy so far. And we've been going through uh, detailed studies of the entire history of Middle-earth series, which is, oh man, I, 
I have learned so much in our close studies. Uh, There's nothing like going through with the Mythgard with the Mythgard Academy chapter by chapter to to really um, get. Uh, a, a really good view of sort of Tolkien's whole literary life kind of unfolding. It's uh, fantastic. If you've if you have missed those and you would like to go back and check those out, they're all available for free on our YouTube channel. That's Signum University's YouTube channel. Uh, go to our playlists. There's a Mythgard Academy playlist with every single course that we've done. There's like hundreds of hours of Mythgard Academy there. It's pretty cool. However, um. Uh, we uh, thank you, Druid's Fire, for updating the title. Appreciate that. Um, uh, but anyhow, so okay. So we uh, um, uh, we're we're our next book, of course, is going to be Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. This we are going to be getting this on uh, November sixth. Uh, so Wednesday, November sixth. Is that the sixth? Is that the fifth? Anyway. The Wednesday, the first Wednesday of November is when we're starting this, uh, and uh, uh, and that's going to be great. So I hope you will join me uh, for that on the sixth of sixth of November, probably. And it is the sixth of November. I figured it was the sixth of November. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I haven't uh, read or discussed this book in several years. So uh, since I think 2012. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm 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 excited to uh, to dig back into that one. Um, Okay, um, <clears throat> and um, the we also have Baymoot coming up. The date has been confirmed. We should have a registration link open uh, bef- by the end of the week uh, this week. Uh, so definitely uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, we are um, uh, we're going to be reading. Yes, this reading schedule for Earthsea, Earthsea will be coming soon. Uh, Fourth Dauntless. Uh, I have. Yeah, that's it's on my list of things I need to do, and I keep getting reminded that I need to do that. So don't worry, I'm not going to forget, and that will that will happen soon. Um, but anyway, okay. So yeah, Baymoot, Baymoot in the San Francisco Bay Area is happening on the 23rd of November. The date has been confirmed. As I said, the registration link should be out soon. Uh, so I hope that those of you who are there in, in uh, Central California in the Bay Area uh, will be able to join me for that. That's going to be great fun. Baymoot was a wonderful event last year, and I'm really looking forward to getting back out there this year for my second visit uh, to the Bay Area uh, for our second annual Baymoot. So uh, I hope that many, uh, to, to be able to see many of you there. Um, Good. And, uh, oh yeah, the last thing that I wanted to talk about. Okay. So you'll remember that I've been saying throughout our fundraising campaign, which came to an end on Saturday, um, throughout our fundraising campaign, I've been saying we're going to do a drawing, right? Remember I've been saying if you're a donor, uh, and, uh, you want to enter in the drawing, we're doing a, we're doing a drawing to sort of celebrate exploring the Lord of the Rings fans. And, that if you wanted to enter that, all you had to do was send an email to donate at signumu.org uh, and uh, enter that. Um, so you may have, and then I've been saying that I was going to do, I was going to draw the winners uh, during the campaign finale, which was on Saturday. And if you attended the campaign finale on Saturday, you might have noticed that I neglected to do that. There are two reasons why I neglected to do that. One reason is that I was getting really sleepy and completely forgot. But the second reason that I did that was more cunning and calculated than that. And that is, during the course of last week, it had really um, 
come to uh, uh, my attention that uh, that w- there had been a, a lag in the release of the podcast episodes, which covered like kind of the entire fundraising campaign when I was announcing that. And one of the purposes of doing that drawing is not to, to, to not, not to include only the people who attend live, which is wonderful. And I love you all. But of course I also love all of you who listen asynchronously um, and don't get a chance to attend live largely for reasons, not at all your fault. So, um, uh, so I wanted to make sure. To, so basically, it was kind of coming to my attention that we were coming up on the drawing, and a lot of the people who listened uh, through the podcast feed hadn't even gotten the chance to uh, uh, to to even like hear that the drawings were happening. So I decided to postpone them a little bit. So we're gonna I'm gonna do the drawing in class on November fifth uh, when um, uh, when I w- when we come back. So we're gonna be off next week, and then we'll be back November fifth, and I'll do the draw. I'll draw the winners there. So that means. If you are listening to this, if you are uh, uh, if you are listening to this asynchronously, there is still time uh, until November fifth, uh, twenty nineteen. That's when I'll do the drawing. So again, all all that you have to do, it's very super simple. Um, if you are uh, if you've if you've made a donation or if you have a con- an ongoing monthly donation to Signum University, just of any size doesn't matter. Just send an email uh, to donate at signumu.org. Uh, and mention that you want to be entered into the Exploring the Lord of the Rings drawing, and we will do that. And of course, this goes for the current uh, uh, the those of you who are here live as well. You get another chance uh, to enter. Um, so anyway, that is the plan. Yes, exactly, Matt. It was a cunning plan. I think I think a cunning plan is exactly what it what it what it was. Uh, I knew better than I knew myself. I think uh, it was better than. My final plan was better than my initial plan. Uh, so anyway, that is, in fact, how things are working. Okay. Are you ready? Are you ready for some more poetry? Because tonight we're going to do some more poetry. So let's jump right to it. So, the A. Arendel poem. Um yeah, Mad Violinist, exactly. I know that the, the five episodes all got released at the same time, and I apologize for that. There was a, some technical problems that we've been having, and we've sort of ironed them out. In fact, we're actually making a big kind of behind-the-scenes change uh, in the podcast, which should be invisible mostly, I think, to most everybody. Um, but um, uh, still, it, we've been having some issues, which we're ironing out. So anyhow, okay, so... Let's get to errantry. So you've heard me mention several times that it's rather remarkable. Uh, the, as remarkable as Bilbo's poem is and, and where we were getting at the end of that poem last time. Uh, and I hope you guys didn't feel like I was being too stubborn uh, in trying to push. But um, the pushing back against our expectations about our applying the things that we know uh, to that poem um, I was really trying, I was kind of urgent with that uh, and persistent with that last time because I think it's especially important here because, and part of this is that um, I, um, um, part of it is that I was, one of the things, you know, there are always, exploring the Lord of the Rings is all about, like, for me, it's been all about, like, kind of discovering things for the for the first time and for me the primary thing that i 
was really seeing for the first time as we were studying through the Arendel poem together um, was I had never really fully perceived Bilbo's angle on that poem before because I had always done what so many of you were wanting to do last time. That is fill in the blanks, right? Um, you know, like every time I'd read the poem before, I was like the Arendel story, the Arendel story, the Arendel story, right? And I was... Um, Whenever I, when, when I got to that line about, you know, Bilbo having the cheek to make verses about A. Arendel in the House of Elrond, I always understood that as merely, like, because it's a big deal, right? So it's, like, setting yourself this, like, massive challenge, like, can you rise to the occasion, you know, of being able to sing verses of A.R. Rendell that sort of like praise him highly enough to fit the, 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 the House of Elrond was kind of always how I'd understood that, right? But the more we came to discuss it, the more I, uh, the more I realized that that's, that's, it's way cheekier than that, right? Um, and if we really pay attention, not to what we know about the story, but to what's said, Right to what the emphasis? What is the narrative that the story is actually giving us? What is the angle on Arendel that the poem is insisting is bringing to us, or really is is leading us to confront? Right, um, we can see it's this when you as soon as you start noticing noticing that you begin to notice things as we were doing, especially over the last two weeks, like how Arendel's deeds are never actually mentioned. Like what he does, what he accomplishes, never comes into the poem, right? And the consequences of his actions are never talked about. What was the effect on Middle Earth, right? What happened as a consequence? You know what? No reference. No reference to his mission. No reference to the War of Wrath. No reference to the ho- to hope. No hope at all. No references to hope of any kind, right? Um, and when we. I mean, yes, of course we can fill all that stuff in, right? But if we're doing that, if we're, if we are hearing him called the flamifer of Westerness and, you know, uh, to, you know, to, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness, if when we read those lines, we're thinking about Gil Estel, the star of high hope, right? Um, we're missing the point, Bilbo's point, anyway, because he doesn't mention that. That's not what he's talking about. So anyway, so I, I, I felt I felt a little like uh, crotchety and stubborn last time. Like I had to constantly dig in my heels uh, and resist the direction that people wanted to go. But I'm, I'm, this is not me apologizing. This is me explaining why I was doing that because I'm totally not sorry that I did that. Um, uh, but I, I am wanting to kind of contextualize a little bit. So. Anyway, this poem is amazing for all of those reasons, right? But this poem is even more amazing when you put it in the context outside of the story, outside of the narrative of The Lord of the Rings, of where it came from. And I bring this up in the context of The Lord of the Rings. In, in some ways, of course, this is, not, this is kind of not exactly relevant to The Lord of the Rings, but I bring it up because I think, to me, it shines one final like a spotlight from one different, one more angle on this question of what is this poem, right? What is this poem that Bilbo is making? What is Bilbo's angle on this poem? And when we see how the, the poem gets here, right? Um, it, I think 
helps us to understand that a little bit. So let's um, let's look at this. So let's um, I'm going to look at two versions, two earlier versions of this poem. Um, the first uh, is the version many of you are familiar with. Uh, called Errantry. Uh, this is the poem, of course, a version of which, a slightly revised version of which, was published in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which is where most people have read it, probably. Um, uh, this is not that, this is not the text of that version. This is the text of the earlier version that was uh, that was published independently. Uh, as I said last time, uh, he published a lot of poetry, uh, you know, especially from that period. Okay, no, I didn't say this last time. I said this on Saturday in the finale when we talked about the Mew Lips poem, which was super fun. Um, got into some serious, intense. Oh man, the Mew Lips is so interesting from a metrical standpoint. Whoo, mind blowing. But you can see that on YouTube. Anyway, point is, or Twitch. The point is, um, in that session, I was saying in that period in the late 20s and early 30s, Tolkien was publishing uh, poems. That's when The Adventures of Tom Bombadil was published. That's when the original version of The Mulips was published uh, and uh, several, several other things. Um, Fourth Dauntless, if you want to look at the version, the fullest set of versions of uh, this poem, it's in The Treason of Isengard. When, um, so when Christopher gets to this point, of uh, you know, in the in the drafting, when Bilbo's poem is is incorporated for the first time in the text, uh, Christopher does like a whole chapter on this poem. Um, so, um, yeah, okay, um, yeah, yeah, Matt. There is a really interesting question about Bilbo's intended audience. Um, let's hold on to that question. I don't want to talk about that question yet. First, because I want to talk about errantry, but also because I will be interested to talk about that in the context of the reception, like right afterwards, right? So let's address that question either on the 5th or on the 12th, if we don't talk about it on the 5th, all right? Um, Okay. All right. So here's the original version of this poem. Um, Tell me what you hear. Uh, you know, we, we've we've sort of trained our ears to be used to the rhythm and the rhyme uh, of the of of the Arendel poem, right? Tell me what you hear here. There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a gilded gondola to wander in, and had in her a load of yellow oranges and porridge for his provender. He perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. He called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him across the rivers seventeen that lay between to tarry him. So this is just the beginning of the poem. It goes on quite a bit. We'll keep going. But let's just pause for a second. Very even beat, JJ. Yes, a very even beat. Good. What else do you hear? What else do you Notice, of course, the shape is the same, right? Same shape, rhyme shape, right? So we've got uh, the trisyllable rhymes on two and four. It's, it's in quatrains. Trisyllable lines on two and four. Mariner, had in her, provender, lavender, carry him, tarry him, right? So we can see that same pattern in the quatrains. Internal rhyme, right? Passenger, messenger, gondola, wander in, oranges and porridge for, marjoram, cardamom, Right? Uh, Argosies, cargoes in, 17, lay between. Right? Trisyllable rhymes in both places, uh, both at 2 and 4, and at the inside of 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. 
right? Uh, at those pivots, just like we've been seeing. Same number of syllables per line. So, I mean, like, on paper, the structure is almost exactly the same as the A. Arendel poem. Almost exactly the same. What makes it sound different? Can you hear that? This is super tricky, by the way. It's one thing to be able to read a poem carefully and be able to, like, observe changes in meter or, like, changes in rhyme scheme and stuff. But when two poems have the same meter and the same rhyme scheme but sound totally different, like, how? Identifying how gets much harder, right? Um, Spiritual cushions. I agree. The structure is more prominent. Yes. Um, The structure is more prominent... The and I would say just to add to that, the trisyllable rhymes are much closer. Um, marjoram, cardamom, yellow oranges, and porridge for argosies with cargoes in the river seventeen that lay between. Um, they're much stronger rhymes. We saw that a lot of those earlier, um, uh, a lot of those earlier. Uh, the one like from the A. Arendel poem were kind of gentler, right? We had the the echo of the sound, right? But it was more like an echo often than than a than a full rhyme, right? Um, Fourth Dauntless, yes, it is more enjammed. Absolutely, it is more enjammed. Um, remember when we were looking at syntax, right? Now we had a bunch of those more complicated ones, in, you know, in the second half, right? Where we got some enjambment and stuff. Um, but there were, especially at the beginning, uh, the, the quatrains tended to be sentences, right? But not only are these quatrains not sentences, look at where the quatrains end, right? Now, especially there's really only one example that we have here, and that's the first one, right? Um, so just starting at line three, he built a gilded gondola to wander in and had in her a load of yellow oranges, right? And had in her a load of yellow oranges, right? So he separates the verb and the direct object between quatrains, right? It's com- like completely impossible to pause between those qu- quatrains, right? It absolutely forces you to rumble on really quickly, right? Um, and... So yeah, so Crystal, sorry, enjammed, of course, enjambment is when you sort of roll straight from the end of, you don't pause at the end of a line, right? Um, So for instance, if you look at it, uh, line two, right? There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a gilded gondola. So right, there's like a pause at the end of mariner, and then you start a new thing, right? A new clause with he built. Um, Whereas... And had in her a load of yellow oranges, right? So to wander in and had in her a load of yellow oranges, you can't stop at the end of that line, right? That line is enjammed into right into the next line, right? Um, he perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. Those are enjammed too. So the enjambment, it's not just that there's more enjambment, is that the two stanzas are enjammed, or not the stanzas, the two uh, uh, quatrains, I mean, the two sets of four lines are enjammed together. So you have to do pretty much the whole thing in one breath, and indeed those first eight lines are one sentence, 
right? There are pauses. It's possible to breathe, but you're kind of like discouraged uh, from breathing, right? Um, now, Matt, good. I agree. The alliteration makes a big deal here, too. There's a lot of alliteration. Now, we have seen alliteration uh, in the A. Arendel poem as well, but this is much more prominent, right? And as Matt points out, the alliteration falls on the stressed syllables. There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a gilded gondola to wander in, and had in her a load of yellow oranges and porridge for his provender. He perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. Yes. Yes. Um, it does make it much more bouncy and more, I don't know, a little silly. Um, ah, so I win Dillian. Um, here's, um, here's, here's the thing. There's a problem. I'm not really reciting this poem correctly. Because to recite this poem correctly, I would have to be reading it faster than I am. Let me try. One breath. There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a gilded gondola to wander in, and had in her a load of yellow oranges and porridge for his provender. He perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. That's at least the pace at which it's meant to be read. And we know this because Tolkien actually left instructions about how this is um, to be performed aloud. And his instructions are as fast as possible and accelerating as you go, ideally. Um, this is meant to be done at speed. Um, uh, yes. Um Yes, a lot of people have uh, noticed uh, the similarity uh, with that, like how well this works as a Gilbert and Sullivan thing, how much this sounds like I am the very model of a modern major general, um, in some ways, in some ways. Um, Fourth Dauntless now wants to hear it sung to that. I'm actually working on something different, Fourth Dauntless. What I want to do is find the perfect rap beat to set this to so that I could wrap this because that could totally be done, but it has to be, it has to, I haven't found the right beat yet uh, because it has to be done double time. Uh, and um, it is. It, yeah. So anyway, it's um, that would be way better in my opinion, but anyhow, um, let's what's the story. A mad violinist, tell Crystal, I tried Rap God. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because you can't... It's too slow on the beat. And and also, the beat of Rap God is too irregular. Um, uh, I need a much more steady beat. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, okay. So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, Robinson. So, you know, I'm... Um, uh, I was having a conversation about this in New England moot. You know, we 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 had a talk about this. Uh I nah, never mind. 
I, I won't go any, I, I won't go any further with this, but, um, um, but, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. So what's the story? Who is this guy? Who's our protagonist? Who is the he? What do we know about him? He's a passenger, which is kind of interesting, right? Good, Gordy, he is a messenger. He's got a job, right? Notice the progression there is a little odd, isn't it? Passenger, a messenger, a mariner. If we'd led with mariner, we'd have had a clearer idea. He's a mariner, a messenger, a passenger. A passenger? In what sense is he a passenger? Yeah, Bricktails, it does sound like he's not the, he's not like the, he's not the cap, the captain, right? I guess. Uh, he's, so, he's a mariner. He sails on the sea. He does have a job. He's supposed to deliver a message. But he's also, in some sense, a passenger. Like, he's not really driving the boat. Okay. Um, so, but what about his boat? What do we learn about his boat? He built the boat. Good. A gilded gondola. What's a gondola? What's a gondola? What kind of a boat is a gondola? No, Mad Violin is not terribly epic. No. Yeah, a small river boat, like the, the what you pole, right? A canal boat? Absolutely. Very small boat. Yeah. It's gilded, though, so it's pretty. And he's going to go wandering in it. And what did he have in his boat? Um, oranges and porridge. He's packed... Oranges and porridge. And he perfumed it with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. So a few, several different spices. So it smells nice and it has porridge and oranges and it's a rather impractical boat to wander too very far in. Right? Okay. He called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him across the river 17 that lay between to tarry him. And Edith, I agree, it doesn't seem to me very practical food either. But the food might not be practical, but it does rhyme, right? It does rhyme. Um, And that seems to be the joke, right? Um, that it rhymes. Oranges and porridge. Uh, and porridge for his provender. Um, similarly, Argosies with cargoes in also rhymes. 
but doesn't exist. <laughs> Several of you are, are noting with satisfaction that he is unlikely to get scurvy. <laughs> Perhaps in that way it's practical, but you know what? Not really. <laughs> not for a long journey. If you just pack a bunch of fresh oranges, you're not going to get too far. You might not get scurvy, but you won't have much to eat after a few days either. Um, so, you know, I, and I, I, you know, you're right. No, no scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> and and he'll have low cholesterol, Chris. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, good. A- an exotic craft with exotic provisions and even more exotic scents, right? That thing which is most crucial when you're going on a voyage. Um, um, yeah. Now, good. Uh, Arieliana. Arieliana. What an excellent name, and I don't remember seeing you before. So welcome. Um, why would a messenger be wandering? If he has a message to deliver, he should know where he's going. And that's an excellent point, right? Uh, a messenger, uh, yeah, to, to wander in. those we, we do. Perhaps we can detect a potential problem from the beginning there, right? Um, okay. Uh, so... How about that third quatrain, the second stanza? He called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him across the river seventeen that lay between to tarry him. Okay, excellent question, Iwendillian. That's just what I was going to ask. What are Argosies? Do you know when, what, what an Argosy is? It's a good Shakespeare word. It's a very Merchant of Venice word. I always think of the Merchant of Venice when I see that word. Yeah, Argosies are ships, merchant ships, carrying goods. That's why there are Argosies Argosies with cargoes in, right? Because you generally have cargoes in, an Argosy. So it's, yeah, an an Argosy is a large ship, a large merchant ship. So yes, the winds of Argosies would be something like trade winds, right? Um... He called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him across the river seventeen that lay between to tarry him. I don't know what that means, honestly. Um. So, okay. Uh. Uh. Are the Argosies like Argos from Greek mythology? Yes, that's what the, where the name comes from. Anyway, from the Argo. Uh, but, um, but it's not a reference to the Argo. It's, it's a reference to, to the kind of ship, which is called an Argosy. Okay. But let me, what I don't understand, he's calling the winds of Argosies with cargoes in, which sounds like he's hitting the open sea. Right. Um, but then he's, he's calling the wind to carry him across the river 17 that lay between. So, if he were just going down 17 rivers, then, you know, Flamifer, as you say, maybe he's in the right kind of boat after all, right? If he's just traveling on the uh, on the rivers. But he doesn't say he's going down the rivers. He's going across them, right? To carry him across the river 17. That lay between. Between what? Between him and what? I mean, if he's in his boat... How are there 17 rivers between him and something else? I'm not, I just, I'm not sure I get it. I'm not sure I understand. 
what's being described there. Um, yes, Flamifer, gondola, gondolas do not normally have sails. You're absolutely correct about that, which is, makes it a little bit odd that he's calling for the winds to carry him. Right? Um, yeah, and good. Bricktails and, and uh, someone else was uh, uh, mentioning the... Um, uh, yeah, Mad Violinist. You were talking about the odd use of Terry, right? To tarry him. Um, we did get he tarried for a little while, right? Um, Arundel did, right? But here, there's a concern that the River 17 are going to tarry him in some sense, right? Um, yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's normally, tarry is normally an intransitive verb. Uh, meaning a verb with no, that does not take a direct object. Um, here it's being used as a transitive verb with a direct object, him, right? To, to tarry him. Um, here is the, um, here's the sus- my suspicion when I get to this point. I get to this point and I'm thinking, you know what? The more I think about this, the less sense, the less sense this is making, right? Um, I'm not sure that it's supposed to make sense. And notice something. Did you get the story when I read it the first couple times? Were you following the story? I bet you weren't. At least I never do. Even when I read it aloud, I, I rarely follow it the first time, right? Because it's just like the sound is so distracting. It's so bouncy and sing-song and rhyme-rich, right? And alliteration-rich. Um, yeah, Crownless, I agree. It, it is very like Tom Bombadillo, right? Like some of his nonsense stuff, right? Um, so... I'm not sure that, again, like, so in what, when we're asking across the river 17 that lay between, when we begin to try to sort out the thorny question of like 17 rivers lay between him and what, and it just doesn't work, right? I kind of um, get the sense that it's just, it it rhymes, right? (laughs) River 17 that lay between, right? That's, that's the point. Um, the poem begins to sound like merely a kind of verbal exercise, right? It's not to say that there's going to be no story at all, but that the actual sense of the lines, the sense of the, of the, of the, of the words of the sentences is far less important. I mean, it's still, it works grammatically. You, I mean, you could, you could diagram it though. Chris is, you know, as you were, as, uh, as, as you and fourth thoughtless were pointing out, he's already, doing funky things with the verb Terry there, right? Um, so, yes, the rhythm and the structure overshadow the content, Ray Burns. That's exactly it. This is more... Um, uh, it's supposed to be fun and done at speed, right? This is does not really seem like a poem that is supposed to be thought through carefully the way that we were thinking through the other one, right? So let's... Um, 
Let's keep going and see what we continue to see. He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on the running river Derelin goes merrily forever on. He wandered over meadowland to shadowland in dreariness, and under hill and over hill a rover still to weariness. He sat and sang a melody, his errantry a tarrying. He begged a pretty butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. She laughed at him, deluded him, eluded him unpitying. So long he studied wizardry and sigildry and smithying. Okay, yes, uh, yeah, JJ, uh, and, uh, uh, whoa, hang on, hang on. Uh, now, how do you do the CH in your name? Is it Rachentia or Rakentia? Is it like Rachel with an N-T-I-A at the end, I wonder? That's another new one on me. Either works? No, don't tell me that. Tell me how you want it pronounced. I don't want to guess. <laughs> um, uh, but, um... Yeah, anyway. Um, okay, so, yeah, as Valori says, he ditched the boat for years to be a wizard smith to impress a bug. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Um, I love the play of sounds in this section. I'm really in this whole poem. This whole poem is a delight, uh, is a delight to say, and I think a delight to hear, right? He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on the running river Derelin goes merrily forever on. Notice the play of both the vowel sounds, but also the consonantal sounds, right? It's easy to miss that because the the rhymes are so strong. But listen to how... This goes beyond... This goes beyond alliteration, right? Uh, To... Like just the play with a particular consonantal sound. He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on, right? Look at the L's. Landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on, right? You know, that's, um, uh, the, like we're doing, um, we're doing L's in like every possible way that we can do L's right there at the beginning, at the end, in the middle, different ways in the middle. Um, as well as playing with some really closely uh, rhyming lines like loneliness and stonily. I could just say those two words back to back all day long, right? Um, yeah, Baruthiel asks very sensibly, can pebbles do anything in, a, in, in any manner other than stonily, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, of course, like so. Then after the L's, we we shift to R's. So it's like liquids all day long, right? The running river Derelin goes merrily forever on. Again, look at all the R's, right? Not just the the initial R's, right? Running river Derelin goes merrily forever on, um, and the way that those four lines just flow out the L's and the R's, right? He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on the running river Derelin goes merrily forever on. I mean, that is so much fun, right? Um, But wait, what were we talking about? Oh, he landed in loneliness, which means I think that the place that he landed is lonely. Like there's nobody else there, but maybe it's him. Maybe he's lonely, but I'm not really quite sure. He wandered over meadowland and shadow to shadowland and dreariness and under hill and over hill a rover still to weariness. Mad violinist, I agree with you. We get the L's and R's continuing in the second quatrain as well. Um, though 
notice that we get very few. In fact, we only get one word in the entire second quatrain that begins with either an L or an R, right? And yet, exactly as you say, the L's and R's keep coming, right? Wandered wandered over meadowland to shadowland and dreariness, and under hill and over hill a rover still to weariness. Oh, man. So good. So good, right? Um, yes, the verbal play of this poem, I think, is clearly more important than the content. But it isn't without content, right? So he's a mariner. But he's certainly wandering now, and he's definitely wandering overland, right? He appears to have left his boat. Wherever exactly he was sailing, which I'm still not quite sure of, he's landed now, and he's wandering around. Over meadowland to shadowland and dreariness. I love that he just wanders to dreariness. And under hill and over hill. And yes, it's hard not to think of Bilbo. I agree with you guys when we get to that line. But again, I, just, I love the rhyme. Un- over hill, a rover still. Right? So good. Um, yeah, Valori, I hope his message wasn't too urgent either. Um, then he sat and sang a melody, his errantry a tarrying. He begged a pretty butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. She laughed at him, deluded him, eluded him unpitying. So long he stuttered, studied wizardry and sigildry and smithying. Um, and that... I think I think that's the point in which he I think this is when he invents the word sigildry. He loves this word and he'll use it several times. Um but um yeah. Okay, so what's weird about that paragraph? What's weird about it? What isn't weird? Uh, yeah, I understand. Um, but um, what... Um, he... He proposes to a butterfly? Is this a, a serious proposal? He's going to get married to a butterfly? A pretty butterfly that fluttered by? Questioning. Question. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? I love it. You guys you guys want her to be a fairy. She has an airish spirit. It says she's a butterfly. Yeah, Ray, exactly. Is this guy human? Do we have any reason to think he's human? Maybe your concerns about his getting scurvy were premature. <laughs> right? Now, Bricktails, you're right. She just fluttered by, so they haven't had much of a long-term relationship left. <laughs> Ambrosius Aurelianus is wondering if he's a butterfly. He could be a beetle. We don't know. It's not said anything. Right? How big is he? He's sailing in a gondola, but we don't really know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Several of you are concerned about the oranges, though. <laughs> I mean, if his boat has full oranges, then, you know, he can't be that small. Exactly, JJ. How big are the oranges, right? Do we know? Uh, they could, I mean, the oranges could be to scale, right? They could be very small. Um, well, let's keep reading. But first of all, um, uh, why is he studying wizardry and sigildry and smithying? Why, why is he doing that? Yeah, Mad Violinist, it seems to have something to do with the fact, with the girl, with the butterfly, right? I mean, we're, we're told, yeah, exactly, Mary. It seems to want to capture the butterfly. Like, she laughed at him, deluded him, eluded him, unpitying. So long he studied wizardry and sigildry and smithying. Yeah. Um, and Aslan's Compass, by the way, I totally agree that uh, it sounds like a Lotro profession. In fact, like I would absolutely love to play a Lotro character uh, who could, who had like, if I could choose choose wizardry and sigildry and smithying as my three crafting professions. Oh man, that would be the best. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, He wove a tissue airy thin to snare her in, to follow in. He made him beetle leather wing and feather wing and swallow wing. He caught her in bewilderment, in filament of spider thread. He built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. He made her shoes of diamond on fire and a shimmering. A boat he built her marvelous, a carvel all a glimmering. He threaded gems in necklaces, and recklessly she squandered them, as fluttering and wavering and quavering they wandered on. They fell to bitter quarreling, and sorrowing he sped away. On windy weather wearily and drearily he fled away. Interesting. Okay, I see there's a... There is a... A growing um, theory... Among folks on the on the on the the the, the Discord chat here, uh, that perhaps the gondola is in fact the basket under a hot air balloon. Maybe maybe he's ballooning at the beginning rather than sailing, which would explain him crossing rivers uh, in his ship. It would explain the winds uh, pushing him. Okay, I'd have expected. Something to come up a little bit more earlier on, you know, about the fact that he was flying. But, you know, it's not impossible. Um, yeah. <laughs> but balloons don't carry cargoes. No, well, but you can fit some oranges, depending on the size of the oranges and the size of the gondola in question. Um, but, um... Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay. So let's, um, let's, (laughs) JJ, I think if we're, if we're imagining Zeppelins, I don't think we're going in the right direction here. Um, I, 
Yeah, and Chris, I don't know if the swallow wing was an African or European swallow wing. Uh, it doesn't specify. Um, but what do we get in this stanza? Yeah, Fourth Dauntless, I agree. The enjambment is much less prominent in this stanza. Notice how slowly I read it, right? That was kind of a mistake. But this is not a this is not a stanza that really draws you on. In fact, if you notice, we have a, a, a relatively hard stop at the end of every single quatrain, either a period or a semicolon at the end of every single quatrain of this stanza, um, which has not been super common uh, in uh, this poem so far. But let's see. What do we learn about him here? He weaves a tissue airy thin to snare her in. So he's gonna he's gonna capture her, uh, which isn't a good look. To uh, to follow in, he made him beetle leather wing and feather wing and swallow wing. So he makes wings for himself to pursue her. Right, and he makes it with beetle leather and feathers and swallow. He makes it swallow wing, or something, and then he catches her in bewilderment, in filament of spider thread. Yeah, Lincoln, I agree with you. Um, when you read long enough, you realize the poem tells a coherent story, even if a lot of the details are nonsense. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, which is why I'm trying not to lean too heavily on the details here, but try to get the big picture. He does catch her in a filament of spider thread. He catches her in bewilderment. Okay. And he builds a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. So he makes a marriage bower with her in a flower. Yes, he studied magic to kidnap her, Valori. Absolutely. He wasn't having it. She was spurning him, deluding him and eluding him unpityingly, right? Laughing at him, right? And uh, he said, uh, forget about it, right? And catches her and marries her and builds her a little bower house in a flower. And makes her diamond shoes, builds her a marvelous little boat, and threads gems and necklaces, and she squanders those, and then they fall to bitter quarreling. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think systematically, this is a very bad example. Right? This is, this is a poor role model in every way. Right? This is a cautionary tale. I agree. But doesn't he sound kind of diminutive? Anybody else getting the impression that this dude is on the diminutive side? Because that's what it's kind of sounding like to me. That I'm thinking uh I'm thinking that um, the 
relationship with the butterfly, she's just a butterfly. And I think he's probably her size, roughly. She could be a butterfly of unusual size. It is possible. Uh, but and, and so would the flowers have to be of unusual size. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a B-O-U-S. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think that this dude is pretty small. I think he's pretty small. I'm beginning to think that those oranges might be undersized. That's what I'm beginning to think. Let's keep going. He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, where countless silver fountains are and mountains are of fairy gold. He took to war in foraying, a harrying beyond the sea, a roaming over Belmarie and Thelamy and fantasy. He made a shield in Morion of coral and of ivory, a sword he made of emerald and terrible his rivalry, with all the knights of Aery and Feary and Thelamy, of crystal was his haberjon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His javelins were his javelins were of malachite and stalactite he brandished them, and went and fought the dragonflies of paradise and vanquished them. Yeah, I don't think B-O-U-S's exist either, Matt. I agree. Um, yeah, he's fighting dragonflies. Vanquishing dragonflies. Right? Yeah. Um, agreed. It does sound like he's... Uh, this does seem like further evidence of his small size. Right. Um, again, those those first two lines are two other lines that I could just say again and again and again. He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold. Oh man, archipelagos where yellow grows. That is so beautiful. I just love that rhyme. Where countless silver fountains are and mountains are of fairy gold. Yeah. Um, so is this a Tom Thumb story? Sorta? Kinda? Um, what this is, is a fairy story. See, it takes a while. <laughs> Tolkien readers are so good. Tolkien, would, I think, you know, I would hope that Tolkien would be super proud of his readers. Because Tolkien readers really take him very seriously, which is great uh, and like totally appropriate. Um, Tolkien, of course, and on fairy stories, as many of you know, speaks almost violently against diminutive Victorian fairy stories. Like all these fairies, these, uh, you know, the fairies of, of, of cowslips and bluebells, um, you know, he speaks with scorn of such stories. And, but then you go back and you read his early poetry and it is full of flower fairies, little winged Tinkerbell flower fairies, which he does eventually come to reject. But it's really clear from his 
early poetry, especially his really early poetry. Read Goblin Feet, right? Um, read Goblin Feet. Read Tin Fang Warble. Read um, even uh, uh, you know even Cortarian Among the Trees. Um, certainly, the Cottage of Lost Play. Um, uh, the really the whole Book of Lost Tales. Uh, and there's even like a memory of it that lingers still in the Lord of the Rings, right? Exactly, Bruinier. When he begins, instead of saying, there's no such thing as tiny fairies, what he does is explain how exactly, Bruinier, just as you say, how medieval fairies became diminutive Tinkerbellish fairies, right? What does... What does Galadriel say when she passes the test? What does Galadriel say? I shall diminish and go into the West. Yes. When Galadriel says it in the Fellowship of the Ring, she seems to mean I shall take, a, take on a lesser role, right? I shall give up my power in Middle-earth. I shall become less significant, right? And go and go away. Originally, in the Book of Lost Tales, when the elves diminished after the, you know, at the coming of the dominion of men, it was literal. They got smaller. They became tiny little fairies that could hide in flowers. That's how. So the very first. His first impulse, his original impulse, back when he was in his 20s, was not to say, pitch the whole Victorian fairy tradition. His first impulse was to say, how did this happen? How did we get from Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, you know, the Green Knight as fairy, uh, to, um, uh, you know, Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream? How did we get there? Right? Um... Yes, exactly, Harnuth. So elves ended up in Keebler cookie bakeries. Exactly. That would have been Galadriel's destiny. <laughs> Had she remained in Middle-earth, she'd have been making cookies at some point or other, or like helping with Christmas presents, or whatever. Right? Exactly, Bruinier. Ariel had to shrink to get into the cottage of lost play. And Bruinier, for my money... I find Christopher Tolkien's commentary on those early poems and those early chapters of the of the Book of Lost Tales hilarious because Christopher is trying to reconcile his father's like invective against diminutive fairies with what is obviously there and he is very shy about wanting to be like yeah, so Dad was totally into diminutive fairies in his early days, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, like that's. Um, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, but it's, anyway, I, I, I think it's, I think I, I, I love that section, but anyway, yeah. So Errantry seems clearly to be in that tradition. Um, yes, he is fighting the Knights of Aeri and Fairy and Thelemy. Um, but they, I think are also diminutive. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're diminutive, right? I think all, everybody in this poem is diminutive. Um, well, Harnath, some of his early stories were written with his young boys in mind. I will also add that some of his early poems were written with his wife in mind. 
and Edith, according to report, loved fairy stories, those kinds of fairy stories. Goblin Feet, in particular, is often understood to be a poem written to please Edith. And, um, uh, and of course, the cottage, you know, You and Me in the Cottage of Lost Play is a poem about him and Edith. Um, now, I'm not saying that Edith is the butterfly. No, 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 no. No, this is not autobiographical. <laughs> I'm just saying Edith loved this, these kinds of fairy stories. Um, okay. So this is why he's able to uh, proposition a butterfly and fight with dragonflies. Also, look at his uh, armor. We do get the arming scene, right? He made a shield in Morion of coral and of ivory. A sword he made of emerald. So his sword is made out of an emerald, which is a little weird. Um, his haberdashon is made of crystal, which is also a little bit odd. Kind of cool, though. Um, and, of course, his scabbard is of chalcedony. Uh, that's the only line, by the way. Uh, that's identical. Like it's the only line that will remain unchanged in every version of this poem. Uh, the one single line, his scabbard of chalcedony will appear in every single version of this poem. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, his javelins were of, ma- of malachite and stalactite. I love that rhyme, but again, it doesn't make too much sense. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. Because the next stanza contains everybody's favorite line. He battled with the Dumbledores and Bumbles and the Honeybees and won the golden honeycomb and running home on sunny seas in ships of leaves and gossamer with blossom for a canopy. He polished up and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. He tarried for a little while in little isles and plundered them in webs of all the adder cops. He shattered them and sundered them. Then coming home with honeycomb and money none to memory, his errand came, his message came, an errand too. In daring do and glamoury, he had forgot them journeying and turning a wanderer. So now he must depart again and start again his gondola, forever still a messenger, a passenger, a terrier, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner. He battled with the Dumbledores. Everybody loves that line. Uh, Of course, a Dumbledore means a bumblebee. Um, That's that's what a Dumbledore is. So yeah, Fort Thomas, pretty sure he was jousting with other pint-sized heroes. Absolutely. Uh, And now he's going on, having vanquished the Dragonflies of Paradise, which, by the way, is an awesome title. Um, Yeah. there weren't enough characters or I would have named my fantasy football team, the dragonflies of paradise, but it didn't fit anyway. Um, uh, he, then he goes and he battles with the Dumbledores, the bumbles and the honeybees and wins the golden honeycomb. Um, which of course is like the diminutive version of the golden fleece, right? It's kind of like the golden fleece, except it's a golden honeycomb, right? Um, and running home. I love that, that rhyme too. On sunny seas, in ship of leaves and gossamer, with blossom for a canopy, he polished up and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. Um, 
so he's made a new ship. So his first ship, whatever it was, whether it was an airship or a water ship, uh, it wasn't super important. Um, cause he, um, um, he's like, he made it, this is his third ship of the poem, right? He made the Carvel, right? For the butterfly before a little pleasure boat. And now he's made, uh, now he's making another one, a ship of leaves and gossamer. Yeah, exactly. Bruinier. That's just what bumbles are. Uh, abominable snowmen. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure it's what it's referring to there. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, leaves and gossamer is what his ship is made out of. Leaves and gossamer. So, uh, sorry. Now I'm trying to imagine if that one's an airship too. I still can't imagine that he wouldn't mention it, but anyway. Okay. Um, we get the Adder Cops, of course, right? People love the Adder Cops. You get the feeling that Bilbo had read this poem, right? Um, I mean, there's a reason. We have precedent for the fact that spiders don't like to be called Adder Cops, right? You could tell uh, because of this poem. Um, <laughs> JJ points out that Arendel's poem comes from this, and Arendel had an airship. Possibly. Possibly. Um, uh, didn't Bilbo write this poem, Aslan's Compass? Well, no, it predates him. Honestly. Um, this poem was written before Bilbo existed. So Bilbo follows this poem, not the other way around. Again, here we're, we're kind of stepping outside the fictional frame of the A. Arendel poem right? Bilbo's A. Arendel poem and thinking about in Tolkien's writing career, where does it get to? Cause when we get there, we'll see it, uh, we'll see it coming in. Um, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm totally down with the airship idea. Again, I find it strange that he keeps just using nautical metaphors without ever suggesting that it's not other than that. Um, but anyway, but then of course we get the joke at the end. The joke at the end is that he's done all these things. He comes home with his honeycomb like a conquering hero. He's vanquished the dragonflies and the Dumbledores and he's come home with the golden honeycomb. And then he gets home and he's like, oh, I had a message I was supposed to deliver. I had a job that whole time. Right. Uh, so he's got to go out again. He's got to start again his gondola. So he is locked in this perpetual loop, right? Forever still a messenger, a passenger, a terrier, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner. Because you know he's going to get sidetracked again. Like, whatever message it is he's supposed to deliver, he's never going to get there, right? He's, uh, he's never going to get there. So, um, that's errantry. That's errantry. Um, so, okay. This poem is delightful. A delightful, primarily, a delightful play of sounds, right? 
It's a silly poem. It's a joke. The whole thing comes to a joke. And wait, there's more. Um, again, in the set of instructions Tolkien left about how you're supposed to read this. So you're supposed to read it fast and faster all the way through. And then when you get to the end, you're supposed to start again at the beginning without pausing. Okay? So, uh, a, roving as a, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner, there was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner, and you keep going. Right? And the, the joke is, you keep going until somebody, tell, until somebody notices and tells you to stop. Right? Um, that's, 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 what, that's the joke. That's how you're supposed to recite this poem. Okay, now, Tolkien is writing The Fellowship of the Ring, and he wants Bilbo to recite a poem in Rivendell. So, he says, hmm, I think I'll use Errantry. I'll have him do this. Whether it was because, um, whether it was because he thought that the verse form, the really playful verse form, was something that um, Bilbo would enjoy, right? That seemed very Bilbo-ish, or not. Anyway, whatever was the reason, he decided to give this poem to Bilbo. So he revises it. There was a gallant passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a boat and gilded her, in silver oars he fashioned her. Her sails he wove of gossamer and blossom of the cherry tree, and lightly as a feather in the weather went she merrily. He floated from a haven fair of maiden hair and everfern. The waterfalls he proudly rode where loudly flowed the merry burn, and danced on, and dancing on the foam he went on roving bent for ever on from ever morning journeying while murmuring the river on to valleys in the gloaming ran and slowly then on pillow cool he laid his head and fast asleep he passed the weeping willow pool. The weedy reeds were whispering, and mists were in the meadowland, and down the river hurried him, and carried him to Shadowland. The sea beside a stony shore there lonely roared, and under moon a wind arose, and wafted him a castaway beyond the moon. Okay. Less bouncy. Right? Feel that? Much less bouncy. Um, there's still a lot of really interesting verbal playfulness, right? My favorite couplet, possibly my favorite couplet in this entire version of the poem is the first two lines of the second stanza. He floated from a haven fair of maiden hair and everfern. Um, I love that because haven fair and maiden hair is a wonderful three-syllable rhyme, right? But notice what he does. He's got haven fair, maiden hair, everfern. So he takes haven fair... Right, and he takes all the vowels and rhymes the vowels exactly with maiden hair, and then he takes the consonants, right, the V and the F, and he shifts them to Everfern at the end, so that those three words all like just kind of ring the changes on those on like that the vowel and consonantal combination in Haven Fair. Right? I love that. It's so much fun. Um Okay. So we can see from the very first line that we're in a different place, right? This dude is gallant, right? He's not merry, he's gallant. There was a gallant passenger, a messenger, a mariner. 
He built a boat and gilded her in silver oars. He fashioned her. It's got oars, right? This is much more practical. It's not just a gondola. It's a boat with oars, right? Now, it does have cherry tree blossom sails, which seems a little bit odd, right? But, um, you know, so like, is this a full-size ship or not a full-size ship? I'm not really sure. Um, but um, we're f- definitely sailing down a river, right? He floated from a haven fair of maiden hair and ever fern. The waterfalls he proudly rode where loudly flowed the merry burn. He's riding the waterfalls, right? woo And dancing on the foam he went on roving bent forever on from ever morning journeying while murmuring the river on to valleys in the gloaming ran. And slowly then on pillow cool he laid his head and fast asleep he passed the weeping willow pool. So he's going down the river, right? And he gets sleepy and he lays his head on pillow cool and falls fast asleep in his boat, right? There's his boat going past the weeping willow pool. The windy reeds were whispering, and mists were in the meadowland, and down the river hurried him, and carried him to Shadowland. Oh, okay. So he's passing through Shadowland while asleep in his boat, right? The sea beside a stony shore there lonely roared, and under moon a wind arose and wafted him, a castaway beyond the moon. Wait a second. So he doesn't land on the stony shore like the old guy did, the errantry dude, right? Beside, he, he gets to the sea. The sea beside a stony shore there lonely roared. So he's, he's, come, he's still asleep, right? Come down his boat to the sea. And under moon, a wind arose and wafted him a castaway beyond the moon. Whoa. So he's wafted by the wind beyond the moon. So he's he's under moon, right? Moon is in the air when he gets down to the sea. And then a wind arises and wafts him beyond the moon, a castaway. Something, something weird just happened here. He woke again forlorn afar, by shores that are without a name, and by the shrouded island o'er the silent water floating came. Yeah, for Thalys, he's been accidentally blown out of the world. Well, accidentally for him, anyway. Yeah. No, it totally happens. Rakentia, I'm going to call you with a hard K, because I don't remember what you said. Um, Rakentia, absolutely. Yeah, it totally happens. Totally happens. Yeah. Well, whether the moon's up in the sky or down near the horizon, if you're going to get behind it, you're going to get airborne, right? And he wakes up, and he finds himself by shores that are without a name. By the shrouded island, or the silent water floating came. Whoa, shrouded island and the silent water? Is he past the water of death? Man. Exactly, Flamifer. He's not a castaway from his boat, Right, it's not shipwrecked, which is normally how you get to be a castaway, as you say. But he's a castaway from the world. Yeah, he finds himself. He seems to be finding himself in fairy. Because look where he is. 
He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, and landed on the elven strands of silver sand and fallow gold, beneath the hill of Ilmarin, where glimmer in a valley sheer the elven lights of Tyrion, the city on the Shadowmere. Look at there! He's in fairy! And not just any fairy, he's in Valinor! He wakes up to find himself there, having been wafted beyond the moon. He doesn't know how. He fell asleep. And finds himself in fairy. So we get that same couplet, he passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, which was just one of the random marvels encountered by the errantry dude. And now it is the signal, like the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold are like Elvenholm, turns out. Right, Toleresia. Okay, yeah, exactly. He's blown onto the straight path. Exactly it, Recantia and Fourth Dauntless. He tarried there his errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and lays of old, and marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. Of glamour he... Of, of glamour... I, I think that must be a mistake. Of glamoury, that has to be. There needs to be a Y there. Of glamoury he tidings heard, and binding words of sigildry, of wars they spoke with enemies that venom used in wizardry. So, he tarries there in fairy, because why not? He was there, he was just wandering around minding his own business, sailing, right? And then, boom, he's in fairy. So, what's he going to do? He's going to tarry there a while, right? And he learns melodies and lays of old and marvels and gets harps of gold brought to him. That's awful nice. And he hears tidings of glamoury and binding words of sigildry. That is, remember they're telling him lays of old and marvels, right? So he hears about the wonders of the ancient world, binding words of sigildry of wars they spoke with enemies that venom used in wizardry. So the, the enemies are using the venom and wizardry. Okay. In panoply of, of elven kings, in silver rings they armored him. His shield they writ with elven runes that never wound did harm to him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrows shorn of ebony. Of woven steel his haberjon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword, his sword was hewn of adamant, his helm a shining emerald, and terrible the light of it. Okay. miss a line. I might have missed a line typing this. I think I did. Yeah, that quatrain suspiciously only has three lines. I think I missed a line. Sorry about that. Um, notice how much more grandiose the uh, arming is. Sounds a lot more like A. Arendel than it does the uh, errantry guy, Right? And valiant the might of it. Thank you. His sword was hewn of adamant, and valiant the might of it. His helm was shining emerald and terrible the light of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brunier. Appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So, I don't think that this guy is small. 
In fact, doesn't this sound like the story of a mortal man who has been abducted by the fairies? Right? Who, minding his own business, finds himself transported to fairy? And when he's there, he's now being blessed by the elves? Right? Told stories? Right? Not just any stories. He's told stories of wars with enemies that Venom used in wizardry. Right? He's learning about glamoury and binding words of sigildry not to catch butterflies. Right? Um, not for any sort of scandalous and, and um, uh, disreputable romantic relationships. This is seems to be a military matter. Right? And having told him about wars and taught him melodies and given him marvels and taught him binding words of sigildry and all that kind of thing, um, he's now being prepared, perhaps himself, to go forth and fight against enemies that Venom used in wizardry. Right? Seems very possible. And there's a terrible light in his shining emerald helm. Right? There's still a green stone involved. It's not his sword anymore. It's now his helm. Right? Um... But his bow is made of dragon horn now, and his arrows shorn of ebony. Still the Chalcedony scabbard, that's a given. Um, but, um, yeah, okay. His boat anew for him they built, a timber felled in elven home. Upon the mast a star was set, its spars were wet with silver foam, and wings of swans they made for it, and laid on it a mighty doom to sail the seas of wind and come where glimmering runs the gliding moon. They built his boat anew, right? New, new wood, set a mast... On the star, seeming to confirm, by the way, our theory that the Silmaril was set on the mast, probably the same place that the star was set here. Um, who's doing all this? Who's doing all this? Um, uh, the elves. We're not told. We just got lots of they. And... We do see the lights of Elven Tyrion and Elven Strands, so it's probably elves he's talking to, and he's dressed in the panoply of Elven Kings, and it's Elven Home Timber, so presumably it's elves doing this. No reference to anybody else or anything else. Okay. What's his mighty doom to sail the winds, the seas of wind and come where glimmering runs the gliding moon? But why? Like, what mighty doom is laid on him? Well, hang on. Let's see what he does. From ever even's lofty hills where softly spill the fountains tall, he passed away, a wandering light, beyond the mighty mountain wall, and unto ever night he came, and like a flaming star he fell, his javelins of diamond as fire into the darkness fell. Ungoliant abiding there, in spider-lair her thread entwined, for endless years a gloom she spun, the sun and moon in web to bind. His sword was like a flashing light, as flashing bright he smote with it, he shore away her poisoned neb, her noisome webs he broke with it. The shining, then shining as a risen star from prison bars he sped away, and borne upon a blowing wind on flowing wings he spread away. Sped. Fled away. Fled away. How about that? We're not vanquishing the dragonflies of paradise 
or the Dumbledores, or the Adder Cops. Right? It's Ungoliant. This is what he's been recruited for, it seems. What he's been tricked out in his armor and his flying ship for. He's got a job. It's an important job. He's going to go slay Ungoliant. And oh my goodness, I love the sound of the, what he does with the, the sound of these lines. Right. Uh, Karita, you're totally right. Um, for endless years, a gloom she spun, the sun and moon. A uh, gloom she spun uh, is a really fun phrase. I agree. Um, Ungoliant abiding there in spider lair, her thread entwined. For endless years, a gloom she spun, the sun and moon in web to wind. His sword was like a flashing light, as flashing bright he smote with it. He shore away her poisoned neb, her noisome webs he broke with it. Poisoned neb and noisome webs is so wonderful. He does a very similar thing in the Lay of Lathian, uh, of course, when he's describing Baron's adventures in the in Nandan Gortheb. But, um, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah, Flammifer says, uh, here we vanquish the big adder cop, and of course in the Silmarillion, he vanquishes the big dragonfly. Yeah, the flying dragon, right, instead. Yeah. Again, as always, Tolkien never throws anything away. Do I think Ancalagon the Black, the first of the winged dragons, has his root in the dragonflies of paradise? Yeah. Yeah, actually. Do I think it's a coincidence that that character, like, you know, again, like flying dragons and dragonflies, do I think that's a coincidence? No. No, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, exactly. Very good, uh, WKU. Uh, in the Errantry poem, he says, we have a small person fighting bugs and insects. Here we have a regular-sized person fighting a giant spider. So instead of diminutiveness, we have augmentation? Yeah. Yeah, he is made the champion of the elves. Absolutely. Um, but wait, there's more. To ever noon at last he came and passed the flame-encircled hill where wells for, of gold for Meleneth, her never-resting workers, build. The seven-branched leaven tree on heaven field he shining saw, upflowering from its writhen root, a living fruit of fire it bore. The lightning in his face was lit, a blaze were set his tresses wan, his eyes with leaven beams were bright, and gleaming white his vessel shone. From world's end then he turned away, and yearned again to seek afar his land beneath the morning light, and burning like a beacon star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame, a mariner, on winds unearthly swiftly borne, uplifted o'er the shadow mere. He passed o'er Calakillion, where Tyrion the hallowed stands. The sea far under loudly roared on, cloudly, on cloudy shores in Shadowland. And over Evermorn he passed, and saw at last the haven fair, far under by the merry burn in Everfern and Maidenhair. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade and all the stars to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shore where mortals are. Forever still a passenger, a messenger, to never rest, to bear his burning lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness. 
Yes. Yes. Karita, the lightning in his face. Oh my goodness. Yes. The lightning in his face was lit. So we got that. The Evernoon stanza is like, whoa. I mean, that is mind blowing. Mind blowing. The visions that he gets in Evernoon, having passed from Evernight and vanquished Ungoliant, he then goes to Evernoon and he sees the seven branched Levin tree. So Levin means lightning. It means lightning. It's an old word for lightning. Um, uh, so this is all like it's it's um, this whole stanza is like about lightning. Basically, he sees. So there's a seven a, a seven branched tree made out of lightning with writhing roots upflowering from its writhen root, bearing a fruit of a living fruit of fire. And the lightning is on his face was lit and his tresses are set ablaze and his eyes with leaven beams were bright. So he, um, like lightning shines in his face and comes shooting out of his eyes by the end of it. Um, and his vessel is shining, gleaming white, right? So he is, has been transformed, twice transformed, right? Transformed first by the elves, right? Who first tell him stories and then, uh, get him excited about the wars, right? And then gird him up and the, in, in the armor of Elven Kings and the, in the panoply of Elven Kings. And then they, they pimp his ride, right? And then he kills on Goliant and goes to Evernoon and has this sort of apotheosis experience where he is now himself. There's no Silmarill, right? He himself is radiant. Um, Tarlonio, I have no idea who Meleneth is. If we know that, I've forgotten. Um, yeah, so um, Calakillian, Karakillian, rather. Um, yeah, that was Tolkien shifting the, con- the spelling conventions and stuff around. Um, he very often used. K's. He, uh, for Thalmas, let me say, he used K's much more often in the earlier days. Um, uh, there are a lot of initial, like the things which are hard C's, um, he tended to spell with K's back in like the teens and 20s, especially. Um, then he took those out for the hard C's which was probably not a good move considering that like it leads lots of people to mispronounce the names of Celeborn and Celebrimbor and things like that. But anyway, um, a little clearer when they were K's to start with, but yeah, I think, in fact, I'm pretty sure that Celeborn's name or, or an analog of it was spelled with a K originally. Um, but, um, Yeah. Flamifer, I agree. Meleneth sounds like some kind of divine-ish figure. Like, we don't get any of the Valar. I don't know if, I mean, is Meleneth Elbereth? I don't know. I mean, Varda has been around for a long time, so it's not like he's not invented her yet. Um, this is written after the Book of Lost Tales, so it already exists. Um What's this poem about? This poem 
seems. Yes, we do get a whole story, beginning, middle, and end, Mike. Exactly. Um, exactly. We get a whole story of what he accomplished and what happens to him, right? And the story is ultimately the story of a mortal who is taken into fairy, right? Transformed by that experience, right? I mean, you can't... Um, Let's see. As somebody once said, um, no one ever passes through fairy unchanged, right? Um, you know, I've heard that before. This dude is certainly not unchanged, right? And he seems to be changed for the better, right? I mean, he is made into a mighty hero. Something almost godlike at the end. I mean, there's lightning beams in his eyes at the end, right? His, I mean, come on, the lightning in his face was lit, a blaze were set, his tresses wan, his eyes with leaven beams were bright and gleaming white, his vessel shone. I mean, yeah, right? He just killed Ungoliant. Um, but. His mighty doom comes back to him again, right? His mighty doom comes back to him, and he can't go home. He sees his home. He wants to go home, and he sees from afar his home. And over ever morn he passed and saw at last a haven fair far under by the merry burn in ever fern and maiden hair where he launched from. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, and all the stars to pass, and tarry never more on hither shore where mortals are. He can't go home, Iwendillion, exactly. Exactly. That's the cost. That's the price. Did he know the price in advance? He didn't sign up for any of this, right? But it's, in the end, a kind of a cautionary tale, right? When you, as a mortal, when you encounter fairy... Great things happen. You are elevated by that, right? I mean, marvels happen. But yeah, Rayburns, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And Katriana, I agree. It does sound like he got used by the elves or denizens of fairy. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that can happen. I mean, people don't choose it and people can't help it. And there's nothing they can do, right? So, that seems to be the moral of this story. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? <clears throat> well, he's sort of Arendel. Why, why would we associate this guy with Arendel? Let me say the same question another way. What does this dude have in common with Arendel? JJ, yes. Number one thing, he kills Ungoliant. He kills Ungoliant. Now, if you're sitting at home saying, uh, did I forget the part where Arendel killed Ungoliant? No, you didn't. It's not in the Silmarillion. But it was one of the things. It was a. Um, Arendel's story is never told. But there are several places where Tolkien like made notes about what Arendel's story was going to be, 
or thing elements that were going to be included in the Arendel story. And one of the most consistent elements back at the beginning uh, in the Book of Lost Tales period and immediately afterwards, right, um, was that he was going to end up killing Ungoliant. So Arendel has like three stages. Like the, the, the Arendel story is essentially in three different movements, right? Movement number one. First, Arendel, the intrepid mariner, the adventurer, right, who sails further than anyone ever sailed and who, like, therefore visits places nobody ever visited and has lots and lots of adventures. Very Odysseus-like in that first phase, right? That seemed to be what the kind of thing that Tolkien was thinking of for the first part of the story of Arendel. So from Arendel's, you know, earliest period up until, like, the crisis comes... He's involved in Daring Do, uh, uh, as our errantry hero was, too. Um, but then there comes a point where, <clears throat> all right, it's time for the message into the West, right? So he sails and he goes and he gets to Valinor and he delivers the message. And then you've got, so you've got the second period, right? Which is the the big pivotal stuff in the middle of Arendel's life, right? Where he goes to Valinor and then gets sent up into the sky and then ends up coming back and uh, serving as aerial support uh, to the ground troops in the War of Wrath and defeating Ancalagon the Black, right? Then, of course, he goes back to his career as an orbid star, right? Uh, and remains there to this day, apparently, right? And that's the long third stage of Arendel's career. So that was like the shape of Arendel's career. Killing Ungoliant was like a staple of that first phase of his life. It's one of his great accomplishments. Um, Tolkien ditched that plan. Um, he decided that, that, and so, you know, many of you are correctly remembering, of course, that in the published Silmarillion, um, the end of Ungoliant is not stated certainly, uh, but he is understood to, or she, I should say, Ungoliant, is understood to have, at last in her famine, to have de- devoured herself. Um, which, from a like poetic and philosophical perspective, I like much better, but come on, that description of this dude killing Arendel, or killing Arendel, excuse me, killing Ungoliant, was super awesome. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, Fort Dauntless, you know, maybe that's part of it. You know, Fort Dauntless says, uh, if Ungoliant is killable, it really diminishes Morgoth. Um, yeah, but Fort Dauntless, what I would say there, though, is it also elevates Arendel. I can't emphasize this enough. Arendel is like the elvish messiah in the Book of Lost Tales. I mean, there are prophecies about his birth. There's like the, you know, like signs and wonders upon the birth of Arendel. I mean, he is, um, uh, he is, he is, the story gets very messianic about, remember there's that whole prophecy about like the coming of Arendel that even kind of survives uh, into the published Silmarillion, though it doesn't seem to make much sense anymore there. Um, but anyway, so, Arendel was a huge, huge, huge deal, though we never got the the huge deal stories uh, from him. But anyway, okay. Notice, do you notice in this poem what seems to be almost an evolution as it goes? The very first stanza, it seems very likely that this dude is still small, 
right? I mean, we still get the the cherry tree blossoms, right? Gossamer and cherry tree blossoms and likely a, as a feather. I mean, if we just had that first stanza, it sounds like we're still in errantry mode, right? A little less silly already. The lines sound different. It doesn't bounce along and um, it doesn't make you think as so quite so inescapably of Gilbert and Sullivan, right? Um, yeah, I... I um, It sounds like we're still there. Then in the next couple stanzas, it becomes one of Tolkien's favorite kinds of things. It becomes a fairy story, not the old school fairy story. Errantry was an old Victorian fairy story, like a fairy story involving diminutive and often possibly winged fairies. Right. Um, This doesn't belong there. Right. This becomes the kind of fairy story that he describes in On Fairy Stories. Right. That is a story of a mortal who wanders into fairy or in this case is abducted into fairy. Against his will, like without his approval, certainly, I mean, while he's asleep, he's wafted and finds himself a castaway out of the world. Um. Then we get, of course, what happens to him here. But um, as he's uh, as he's when he arrives in Ferry, the story seems to develop again, right? He's not just this is not just a random mortal going to a random fairyland, right? He goes to Valinor, and all of a sudden. When we get to the Hill of Ilmarin and Elven Tyrion and the city on the Shadowmere, we're now all of a sudden within Tolkien's mythology. Right? We're 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 there all of a sudden. Right? And now he's becoming Arundel. Right? Yeah. Hey, there's this suicide mission we need to volunteer for. None of us want to go, says Tarlonial. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Right. Uh, hey, you interested in a mighty doom? Right. I mean, sounds like fun, right? We'll give you all this sweet bling, right? <clears throat> all this really awesome gear. And... Having arrived in Valinor, he becomes Arendel. And he kills Ungoliant, who is named... Right? I mean, there's no doubt, there's no question. This is Ungoliant. This is part now of the mythology. Right? Um, but there's still the catch. It It hasn't forgotten where it was before. Before it was the story of the mortal who wanders into fairy, right? And the mortal who wanders into fairy and who can't really go home is not an uncommon fairy story motif, right? Or you do come home and you find everybody you ever knew has died of old age already, right? Or something like that, right? Um, that is um, that is the kind of thing that happens, right? And it's happened to him. So. It's like the first step 
is that the sort of the silly fairy story has involved into a serious fairy story that is a story of mortals going into fairy and the dire consequences. At least, I don't know if dire is quite the right word. Well, mighty consequences, right? Um, but then that becomes the A. Arendel story. But it doesn't cease to be that mortal wandering into fairy story, right? Bilbo hasn't forgotten this. The guy is now A. Arendel. He's not been called A. Arendel, right? So when Tolkien revises this again, he becomes A. Arendel from the... It becomes A. Arendel was a mariner, right? And the poem, the poetry matures a little bit more, becomes even less silly, right? There's even less of the sort of the pure play with sounds. There is some of it, no question, but um, we get... Um, uh, but again, the, the, the sort of the, the silliness meter, right, continues to go to get wound back from Arendry to Arendel was a mariner. It's Arendel's story from the beginning. And yet, it's still the story. As we saw when we were reading the Arendel story, it's still the story of a mariner who gets drawn in to the fairy realms and wants to go home but can't. And Belongsmond, I cannot imagine that the speed is supposed to be the same with the A. Arendel poem as Arendry. You almost can't do it. You can. And I know that Tolkien would recite it fast. Tolkien recited everything fast. But um, it's hard to do. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't It doesn't feel right, Belongsmond. Um, yeah, yeah, you just can't do it. So... Bilbo these two concepts I want to tell the story of Arendel and I want to tell the story of a mortal and what happens when a mortal when a mortal goes to live among fairies these are the two things that first kind of collide and I wonder kind of accidentally um, or rather just out of this kind of evolution. Like I, it's kind of sounds to me like the story kind of gets away from him and goes in really awesome directions. But I really don't think that this story, this poem, this version of this poem ended up where he started it. Right. Um, and yeah, so he kept those things mashed up. But he framed it clearly as an A. Arendel poem from the beginning. But it doesn't lose that theme. And we still have Bilbo thinking about that. We still have Bilbo contemplating the significance. And of course, it has significance that he himself doesn't even understand. Right? There have been costs. He can't go home. He, he's not being allowed to go home, right? He's made it to Rivendell, and now they won't let him leave, right? He wants to go home and go back to Frodo and bring the ring back, and they won't let him go, right? He can't go home. And he's never going to go home. And Frodo can't go home, right? Um, exactly, kid. Exactly. Um, and even though both of them 
Remember that Saruman is going to point out that Frodo has grown, right? And Gandalf is going to tell them that they are among the, the, the great ones now, right? And they can handle these things themselves, like scouring the Shire. But, um, but also, they can't go home. Um, so, for me, this, I, I think that we can hear this as we were seeing last time. I think that we can hear this in the A. Arundel poem all by itself. But when we see how this got here, how this went from a silly, diminutive fairy poem to a, ser- a poem that began more serious and grew even more serious as it went, right? Um, next time, we will talk about this poem, the A. Rendell poem, I mean, of course, in its context, right? We'll go back to the prose. We shall resume our discussion of the prose and talk about the reception. And I, I do think it's important for us to be thinking about Bilbo's motivation. What do we learn about that? What can we glean from what he says, right? Um, what he says or doesn't say. So we'll think about that stuff next time. And don't forget that next time, even though we are, um, you know, remember next time is not going to be for two weeks, but uh, next time is also going to be a special occasion. Uh, and we are going to have some very special guests joining us for our discussion next time of the context of this poem and its reception. That is, I will be joined by the two hosts, uh, Alan and Sean, of the Prancing Pony podcast. Uh, so that's uh, next that week, the first week of November, is uh, the official the official crossover point, sorta, of uh, 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 of um, uh, of our two podcasts discussions of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so they're going to be with me on Tuesday, and our episode that I recorded with them uh, is gonna is gonna happen uh, that same week. It's going to be released that same week, the first week of November as well. Um, and it's going to be Chris's birthday. So there you go. Um, anyway, okay, great. So it's field trip time. Thank you guys for joining me for our poetry discussion tonight. Uh, and next week. We're not going to look at poetry, but we are going to still talk about it uh, in its larger context. So uh, thanks, everybody. So thank you for uh, folks who joined me on Twitter. Uh, and I'm going to change over the uh, uh, to uh, to Twitch. So you can feel free to join us on twitch.tv slash SignumU. Thanks. Good evening, everybody. Can you hear okay. me okay? Yes, I can, I think. Right, cool. Let's see, I gotta hang on, I gotta fix my audio here. I forgot to put my earbuds in. <laughs> okay, let me just double check to make sure the sound is coming through. I think it is. Okay, good. Excellent. All, All right. right. All right. So. So that was fun. That was, that was oh, fun. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, both of those poems are so much fun in their own way. I mean, Errantry is the most purely playful poem that Tolkien wrote, I think. I mean, there's there's nowhere else where we just see him having fun with language in a in a kind of a purer way, right? 
Um, yeah, and you know, I, confession: I'm a sucker for the Victorian flower fairies too. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So there you go. I mean, there's you know, there's a place for that. Um, yeah. But uh, but of course, the A. Arundel poem is the you know the the the, the Rivendell poem because uh, again that was the first time that the poem was placed in the context of Rivendell in the story. Um, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. that's when that change began to emerge. Um, anyway, is uh, it, I mean, it's just I mean, that's the only place. That's the I mean, it, in a very real way, the um, um, that poem is like the biggest version of the story of Arendel we ever get ever. Um, yeah, no, it's as English as it comes. It's like you could see the scaffolding from different periods all sort of mixed together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and we're headed back to the same route here. Okie dokie. So we might as well talk while we travel. Um, Where are we going? Eggnog? Yeah. Uh, eggnog, yeah. Yeah, nog, nog glog. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. All right. So Alan and Sean want to join us on the uh, field trip, by the way. Oh, fun. Yeah. I'm excited. We'll have to think of something particularly devious for us to look at. Yeah, that's true. We should plan something uh, special. Well, since they're crossing over at Rivendell, maybe Rivendell's the way to go. Yeah, I know. I think Alan has played some, but I don't think Sean has. Uh, we're I trying see. to get him to get a character through the intro area so he can join us. Um, yeah. But Alan already has it. Uh, already has a character on Landreval, so. Um, How can I be of service? Which is where, by coincidence, we were already scheduled to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So. Uh, anyway, yeah. So we're we're working on this. So he's going to have like a level five character. I don't doubt. Um, mm. uh, so somewhere safe would probably be good. <laughs> okay. We'll ponder upon that, I suppose. Yeah. It's a shame the, I think I guess, the fall festival will be over by then, maybe. I guess we could ask them where they would like to go. and. Uh, yeah. Especially the, the, the first-timer. Yeah. Well, that'd be interesting to see. You know, it's like the doctor taking his companion through time and space and going, oh, this is just the Shire. And they're going, oh, it's the Shire! <laughs> exactly. Yes, it is kind of like that. All right, let us head out to by Gondaman again, and then we'll go a little bit past. I want to go up to those um, those treasure fields. Mm-hmm. Yes, quite. So, funny thing about the treasure fields. So, um, that was the when I first started my account. And I mm-hmm. was running Wigand around Bree. Um, I was maybe level 10 or something like that. I was still doing some really basic Bree land quests. And the very first festival came up. <laughs> and the, it was the treasure fields thing. The, the treasure hunt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, then you're spirited away out there, weren't you? Yes. I had no idea, like, what would happen, right? So I'm like, oh, like, a quest. Like, I always accept quests. Like, I'm keen to do every quest there is. So I clicked accept, and then, like, boom, I'm out there. 
and I was like, ah, like, where am I? I mean, I just, I didn't even try to do anything on the treasure hunt. I was just like, so panicked. I'm like, run away. Right. I'm like, and so I just like, fortunately I had just figured out how to do milestones. So, um, I, I did in fact, um, I did in fact head out, um, just like get back to like the prancing pony. And I was like, phew, Oh boy, that was a close one. Um, (laughs) and I felt totally betrayed. Um, that was the second time it happened to me. The first time of course, that I got transported away was by Gandalf to Rivendell. Oh yeah. Oh, that's terrifying. Which I was also totally not expecting and was really mad because I'm like, I wanted to get there in order, you know, like, yeah, the plus, plot. if you if you're out there in low level, you can't take a horse back. Yes, I know. Like I couldn't get back. Um, anyway, yeah. So that was I was deeply Why troubled by that. Why have you betrayed me, Gandalf? Yeah, that was that was hard. But then and then you know when the treasure hunt thing came up, like that was just again it was the first time one just kind of popped up onto my screen and transported oh, yeah. me to a random place. So. Yeah. Wizardry. Yeah, it was weird. But anyway, because of that, because I got because I got so panicked and never completed it, and indeed I've never done it at all, um, <laughs> uh, ever since then, um, I never even knew where that was. Like I never even knew that that was actually like a, a, a legitimate place on the map. Because again, I was starting a human character from the Breelands, so I'd never been anywhere near Arid Lewin. Um so I was just like in this strange map in this strange country I'd never been to. And I vanished out of it as quickly as I could. And of course the, the quests didn't take me to it. Like I never went to either the Shire or Arid Lewin for a really long time. Um, because I was just like following the quests up into the North Downs and, you know, cheerfully, cheerfully, you know, there I went and, and, uh, only later on came to explore, uh, the other places. But yeah, I, so I, I only discovered, that like you can mm-hmm. just travel to where that treasure hunt place is on the map, like very recently, like within the last yeah. year or so. Well, for the yeah, for the longest time, I thought it was a contained place. It didn't like extend out of there until I ran off the side of yeah. the mountain. Yeah. Then it's like, oh wait, I know where this is. So. Okay. Yeah, we're coming up here. Here we are. All right. Yep. Yeah, so this is. road, is this the road that goes up to it? I believe so. Okay. I'm prepared to be wrong. All right. Let's head up this way then. It's got this little switchback approach. It's very similar to the where the elves were camped out, uh, Thornad. Right. Just well, the approach and everything. Right. Well, and it's interesting because we haven't seen much of this. We've because this is the dwarf road, which uh-huh. has been very consistent. Even the one that goes up to Thrassy's Lodge was consistent. But on the stre- on the flat stretch down there, the path kind of petered out for a while. Yeah, which it normally hadn't done because we concluded that this road was made by Thorin's people, and indeed we immediately see columns that are. Clearly, Longbeardian. Yep. And also, the blue stone on the outside indicates. Yeah. Ah, see, for a second from the other side, I thought that this was a broken, sort of ruinous column, but it is not. That's a feature. That's not a break. It's a feature, not a bug. 
That's right. That is a that is a very interestingly designed pillar, and we've not seen these anywhere oh, else. We, we've seen very few short pillars that were done that way on purpose. Yeah. And then we get the banners with, right? Oh, like the same thing, but a tall bit on the yep. top. Okay. And then a a squat. What is this? A tower? Too short to be a tower, too big to be a crenellation. What is this thing? Water tower? Uh, um, no idea. I'm going to say it's structurally important. Okay. And pillars overlooking... Okay, we got, we got overlooking the road. Remember, there are dwarfs in Vibes, so chances are there's a lot more beneath the surface that we haven't True, seen. true. I mean, right. Um, there's no reason to suspect that the main door is going to be from the outside. Yeah, it could be support to keep the, the cliff face from collapsing. Right, right, right. And Bricktails, you are correct about that. There is no Mythgard Academy tomorrow, because uh, we're between books right now, and there is no exploring, there is nothing next week. I'm going to be away all week next week. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be on a little retreat with my wife next week. Very exciting. Yay! A week without awesome. the kids. In Hawaii. Wow. Yeah. Jackpot, man. Jackpot, indeed. And I was, I was pleased. I, I got, you know, <laughs> I got two days of vacation this last weekend. First time away from the kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's kind of cool. Yeah. You do find yourself going, oh, so-and-so would love this. Oh, so-and-so would think that was so funny the whole time. And then you go, stop, stop, stop. You're not doing that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, no. Just being selfish. No. Yep. These uh, columns are really intricate. I don't think I've seen them this decorative. No, before. we've not seen anything like this kind of decorative column. And we've got the short ones and the tall ones, right, uh-huh. that go around. And then we've just got this, like, sort of wall thing, right? Uh-huh. Which... There's, there's a diamond pattern. There's a knotwork pattern. There's these arches on here, these sort of arabesque-looking arches at the bottom. Right. Is that... Somebody... Um, this isn't... What am I looking at? Is that Sarnor? No, that's not. No. Yes, it is. I am looking at Sarnor across the way there. Up on oh, the yep. That... Yeah. That's the gate we couldn't get through, isn't it? Uh, Looks like it. Yeah, the bricked up one, I think, Yeah, right? the bricked up gate. How you get up there? Yeah. Oh, how to get up here? I jumped yeah. over from the other thing. Canopies. I climbed up over on the other side and then I jumped across the oh, corner. Other side. Okay. Okay. Yeah, oh. no, I see it. I see it. So, this is something fairly consistent that we've seen. That is, the wall, like, many people would have, you know, a wall of some kind here and not just a flat open space with a drop. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you'd normally expect, like, a wall with crenellations. You know, something to stand behind and shoot at if, like, somebody were attacking you. I mean, this is a beautiful view down the valley to the approach to this place. Um, uh-huh. You know, which makes you think this would be pretty defensible. But there's no wall here. But again, we've seen that very consistently. We saw that all around uh, Gondaman. We saw that in all of the long and stuff up at uh, Sarnur. Um, yeah, and no railings, of course, Druid's Fire. Absolutely correct. <laughs> Um, 
They're not. OSHA violation. Uh, yeah, they're not worried about that. But um, it, I think we've established not only in the, the classes available, but just in from the buildings that this is not a group of people who would be like firing bows or something, someplace where they'd need to hunker down behind something. Chances are they had a machine to do that, or um, like maybe kettles, or or some sort of device to to, to prop up here. Right. Or again, just that, like, as you were suggesting before, like, we're thinking about it from the wrong orientation, right? We're thinking about it from a, a surface dwelling orientation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're thinking about what humans would build in fortifications up in a spot like this, which yep. would be a place to live above ground with walls that would go up to protect it, right? Um, mm-hmm. But when you look at this, this is just a platform, with nothing. Like, there's literally nothing. It's not even a building, unless those corner tower things are buildings, which they don't look mm-hmm. like. Um, like, there's nothing here. Not only is there no wall here to defend, but, like, why would they need to defend it? Like, they don't care to defend it. This would prevent anybody from climbing up, right? If anyone did manage to scale the stone mm-hmm. up to here, then this, like, really smooth wall would be a challenge, right? For them to carry on scaling up. But still, like, at the end of the day, so what if somebody comes up here? What happens then? There's nothing here. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing here. So the dwarves, like, would be presumably below the ground. Like, where they would be, where they would be living would be more, less accessible. And we certainly saw that throughout Sarnur, right? Sarnur was like a city that had no, like, city there, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the places. And no doors to enter into. But again, that's... That we could see. (laughs) That we could see, exactly. So presumably there's more of that kind of thing. Now, mm-hmm. once again, here the um, the road just totally vanished. Yep. Totally vanished. No rest. No, there's a little vestige of road. So we've Plus got this, uh, these. This, there's not a lot of traffic here. <laughs> right. Right. So that the dwarf road has become overgrown, but we have these gorgeous columns, again, much more detailed, much more labor-intensive, honestly, in the design and execution of those columns than the columns mm-hmm. that we saw, say, down in Heladul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you do in an area where the road gets overgrown or snowed over or something like that. You have those columns to help guide you. Sure. Oh, what on earth is this? What on earth? An even more random set of columns with other platforms. With nothing but a couple more columns with a banner on. Huh. Huh. It is a place to do things, but what things? Yes, what things, and in what way does this place facilitate the doing of them? Yeah, it's a little unclear really is. Um, See, this is how rumors get started. The dwarves are secretive. Right. Now, it's a nice symmetrical pattern. Uh-huh. The eight... Um, yeah, the eight um, columns... It's just, it's a platform, or is it a and roof? And the three, is this symbolic in some way? I mean, is it like structurally symbolic? I don't see it. Uh, 
can't get up. Missing some sort of furniture that's not there, like stairs or doors. Or doors. Altar. It does like with the way that it's kind of sheltered in this little hollow. Mm-hmm. And with the kind of pathway that it forms, it does feel like if there were an altar at the end of this, it would hardly be surprising, right? And goodness knows we've seen plenty of altars, true, mm-hmm. often goblin altars or whatever, but um, yeah, I don't know. Some sort of platform or dais to give speeches on or something? Like this is a pulpit? <laughs> That's an interesting idea. I mean, this could have been a kind of courtyard, though it looks like just a road. I say uh, it looks yeah. like a courtyard, except it doesn't look like a courtyard, because there were clearly no paving stones over here. Or other buildings. So that would imply it's a doorway of some kind. Maybe. Like it's a house. Everything up to. Maybe there's digging here because it was buried. I don't know. We notice another thing that we've not seen anywhere around here is any evidence of anything dour handy, right? Yeah, that's that's true. This is this has been just long beardian. Yes, long beard, uh, long beardian all the time. Let's keep going. I'd hazard to say it's newish too because it doesn't. It has a lot more detail and and artwork than some of the long beard stuff we've seen. Is this from a time? longer ago when they had more time to work on stuff or is this more recent yeah I don't know this wooden stuff doesn't look very recent no this is scaffolding they put up to do the treasure hunting pretty weathered though wouldn't take long in this cold I think but yeah I guess a lot of that is meant to be frost right a rhyme What's the red? Rust? The red. Metal. On the yeah, edges. The red. There's this... Uh, is it a crown? Looks like a crown. Uh, could be. Like a maker stamp or something? I think there's, it's supposed to be the type of wood. No, no, like no. A, no, there's definitely a painted insignia. You can see the two lines on either side, and there's a repeated... Almost like a yes. stencil or something. It looks like either a crown or maybe a red bird, like a hawk. Flames? Could be flames. Potentially could be flames. It's the stamp of the lumber yard, I guess. See, and you can maybe see it on the upright a, posts here. Maybe it glows in the dark so you don't fall in. <laughs> oh, right, it's like track lighting? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Landing lights. Yeah. Wouldn't put it past him to have invented something like that. Or maybe it's some sort of treatment to the wood so it doesn't rot. Like how, you know, modern day... Modern day wood constructions have compression and chemicals added to the wood to keep it fresher longer. I don't know. I think it's definitely a design. But here's the challenging thing. All right. Here's the thing I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out, is it the same? 
like, looks like. Okay, Although so like, it might be reversed from one one to the other. There's five of them. It's repeated. The design is repeated five times on this pillar here. Uh-huh. But it doesn't look... I mean, of course, the frost pattern overlaying it is different in each place and obscuring different parts of the image, so it makes it very difficult to tell. But I'm trying yeah. to figure out... Because it doesn't look like it's exactly the same. Maybe it is. Yeah, it's hard to tell with all the frost and rime in front of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a design. Yeah. And what insignia could that be? Well, let's assume it was a lumber, uh, it was a lumber yard's mark. What would it? What would it be? Technically, using for delineating. I don't know. I mean, it looks like it was painted or engraved on here. Most likely a stencil. If if the theory is that it's the same image, it would most likely be a stamp or a stencil. Yeah, very possibly. Okay. What if this was the dower hands? Uh-huh. The wood is made by the dower hands. No, I know what it is. What is it? I know what it is. Notice what kind of wood has the stamps on it. Their the support. square posts, yes. Their support. Uh-huh. The markings are to, to delineate that these are wood that's supposed to be used in a specific way, as opposed okay. to the wood planks that are being put across them. Right, and those are plain. Uh-huh. Even the cross beams down below have them. Uh-huh. All support. So yeah. maybe they were put in first, and then the other put put in second. It's like Ikea. They got markings on them. Okay. To indicate. <laughs> it's like Ikea. Well, it, it, it makes sense. You I know, gotcha. Forged by that gotcha. longbeard dwarf Ikea, you know. Okay. I think they're dower handy. I think that this... Because I know that wood doesn't take all that long to weather when contrasted uh-huh. with, with uh, stone... But a lot of the wood we've seen around here, I mean, like in Sarnur, for instance, seems to last pretty well. But we've never seen anything like the sun. No, not necessarily. So I'm going to be keen to see anything else like it as we go forward. Is there anything else up here? Yeah, um, there's a dwarf keeping guard. I can't can't remember if there's any dwarves into the uh, doors into the hillside up here. I can't remember. Because, yeah, we or, haven't found yeah. a point of ingress if, uh... No, it was a column. It was a column. Yeah, I couldn't remember if there was a door anywhere. It doesn't seem to be. Alright, there's a column down there. Okay, oh, yeah, and there's one over here, too. Just like the one at the center of that... Whatever it is. And this is the same one that we looked at before the one that kind of looks like a hammer. Uh-huh. We saw it in Gondaman. Yep. That's the one. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. 
so I was saying that we hadn't found any dour handy ruins. Yeah. Um, up here. <clears throat> and we haven't found anything in stone. But if that wooden scaffolding was left uh, by them. Yeah, I'd have to see. I know there's some scaffolding and construction work going on at uh, Thorns Hall. We'll yeah. have to compare. I agree. And, and hopefully we can find some without frost on. <laughs> well, we're going north from here. I doubt it, but... <clears throat> well, if we can find some inside, is what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's head down. Oh, I totally thought that that deer was chasing you two, by the way. <laughs> Harnith, I thought that that deer totally was after you. It's possible that it could be recent, recentish, dour handish, excava- or dour handy excavation of an older site, Rakentia. That does seem possible. But all the treasure hunters up here are longbeards. Yes, and all of the. Oh, you gonna fall of... down? You gonna fall down? Yes, I am. That's okay. Gently, I fell down gently. Floated like a wee brick. Huh. It's a shame the dwarves aren't here and we can't talk to them about the area. Hey, what's this? Did I see this? I didn't even see this. What is this? See thing? what? This. <laughs> Wait, I have to go to an area where I haven't fallen down. Yeah, see, look, yeah, I accidentally fell off the cliff and, uh... You learn all sorts of things when you plummet. Got to this place with a door with a handle. What? I don't remember seeing that door before. Door with a handle? Yeah. It's totally got a handle. And not only does it have a handle, it's like human height handle. Any short people can go, go, like any hobbits or dwarves stand next to that thing. Yeah, it's like shoulder length. The hobbit have to reach up to, uh, at the head, at head height or above to get that handle. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Aval- Avalarda. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this right here. Hey, yeah, you found me. See, if you just Uh slid off the cliff, you know, (laughs) like civilized people. So, I wonder if this is the entrance, then, because it is a big door in the middle of nowhere. Exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, that door, I don't recall seeing that door with the perfect little Celtic knot right in the middle. Hmm. I don't remember seeing that. We've only seen doors for the dower hand. Yeah, we saw... Two different kinds of dour handy doors. Uh-huh. I mean, it's obviously a, you know, a long beardish construction, this. Yes. Um, hmm. Are these meant to be windows? Is that possibly um, like I've... translucent stone or something? Oh, like some kind of mica? Yeah. Because, I mean, like, flanking the doors, it looks like it here, right? These look like windows. 
See, now I want to look inside a dwarf home and see if they actually show it. Yeah, I think that's entirely feasible. Yeah, I'm not sure a... you'd be able to see well through it, but it'd let light in. It has a door and it has windows. Yeah, you wouldn't really be able to see through it. It would just be translucent if it were something like mica. But... So this just looks like a a big house. Yep. Just, you know, like a nice little suburban just outside of Gondaman. Probably closer to a gatehouse. Maybe. And how close to Gondaman is it? No, I don't think it's for Gondaman. I think it's for the stuff on the hill, but... I think it's for the oh, treasure hunting site. For the treasure hunting site. Maybe. It's much closer. Maybe they're all connected. Yeah. Right. I wonder how these, how close these are to the elven ruins that were once here. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Looking at my map. Yeah, they're oh. a little further away than Gondaman is. That's true. And of course, Gondaman used to be elvish, too. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking about yeah. how Gondaman was once elvish if anything right. out here was. Right. But then again, I don't know. I mean, this construction is pretty new from clearly when the Longbeards took over the place, including, you know, elvish mm -hmm. Gondaman and rebuilt it leaving not a scrap of evidence of Elvish architecture anywhere. <laughs> Maybe this was the entry point. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. All right. Well, I'm tempted to go on to eggnog, but I feel like I probably shouldn't because it's late. Yeah. And I should let people go. All right. Uh, but uh, uh, that was... That was fun up in the treasure fields today, and we'll have uh -huh. to look. I'm 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 keen to solve the mystery of those red stamps on those. Uh, well, I say mystery. I want to see them more clearly so I can see what they're supposed to be, uh, a yeah. fire or a bird or what. Um, but anyway, and if they appear anywhere else, exactly. And if they appear anywhere else, and if we can find out if they're dour handy or long bearded. So anyway, or. so thanks everybody for joining me today. So remember, no class next week, but we'll be back on the fifth with our special guests. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Looking everybody. Forward to it. Very good. Bye. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.